Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Anna. I'm Lance. And this is Murder's Night Out. <laughs> and we're back. As you could tell from the intro, there's a different voice. Hello. <laughs> So tonight, everybody gets the pleasure of listening to me and my husband, Lance, argue about shit or talk <laughs> shit to each other because Emily was not able to make it. Y'all send up positive vibes for her and, you know, whatever you do, she's got the flu or strep, I think. And Something. yeah, she's it's going around her house. So Lance was kind enough to step in. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> don't seem so excited <laughs> so are you excited to hear about the case i've got for you tonight i am it's uh definitely one i've heard about but i know you have way more details than i've ever heard <laughs> so lance he's not he's not against true crime or anything like he's just not into it so it's going to be interesting to see how his reactions are and what his thought process is. And, uh, you know, I guess just really see how dark and twisted I am. <laughs> oh, I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs> no worries there. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm excited to have him on. I've been talking about getting him on and, um, you know, letting him, you know, join in and go down this dark road. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what are your expectations for a lot of holy shits, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, I can't believe they did that and so on, I guess. Mm, well, there's a lot of holy shits in this case. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I know some of them just from the few details that I have heard or seen or whatever but <laughs> well everybody buckle up and hold on to your butts because guess what case i'm doing the west memphis three. Oh, wait he was drum rolling on the table <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> i fucked that one up yeah west memphis three or boo or <laughs> whichever reaction you prefer so for anybody that knows me really well knows how much or how close closely i've watched this case this is a case that actually probably got me into true crime a long 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 time ago um and i followed it and i've really just tried not to let my own like bias get in the way and i've been really excited to do this case and this was one that i wanted to make sure that I gave it justice and did gave the proper amount of detail and everything. So everybody can also make their own assumptions and whatnot or their own. Are they guilty? Are they not guilty kind of thing? Um, so this is going to be a multiple parter. I'm not sure how many parts <laughs> <laughs> she's been researching for four days. Um, Actually, probably more like a week. I've been researching this case like for the last 10 years, but <laughs> let's be honest. Okay. Yeah. That's, 
I would okay. not say the last four days. Heavily, probably the last two weeks, because I knew when I was going to do it, I was going to do it right. And I wanted to make sure that all of uh, my listeners, you know, really got as much detail as I could, you know, possibly give. And also, I'm going to cover, uh, you know, the new developments and whatnot. So, like I said, this case is going to be a multi-parter. So, hold on to your asses. There's really no quick way or no easy transition into this. Nope. So, here we go. So, our case starts in May of 1993. Most Anybody and everybody that's ever followed true crime knows has either, you know, read their own, um, done their own research on this case or followed the case and whatnot. So I'm going to, you know, just go through the timeline and, you know, start from there. So, like I said, our case starts on in on May 5th, 1993. So around 8 p.m., John Mark Byers had reported his son, Christopher Byers, missing. He had said that he had, you know, he called the police. The police officer showed up about 10 minutes later. Uh, he told police that the last time he had seen his son, Christopher Byers, which was really his stepson, his stepson, Christopher Byers, he was cleaning the yard around 5.30 p.m., which was before sunset. Now, Mark Byers reported, and this was later on after this, that Around 8.30 that night after, I'm assuming when the police officer left, he started searching the wooded area because apparently that was where Christopher liked to play. The wooded area was known as Robin Hood Hills, which was behind the Blue Beacon Truck Wash in West Memphis, Arkansas. After the officer had taken the report, he, or she, I'm sorry, was dispatched to another call at a local chicken restaurant, Bojangles. The manager there had called to report a man that had shown up at the restaurant who was bleeding and in the women's bathroom. He was uh, he was apparently muddy. Uh, he had blood dripping from his arm. And so the officer went to that call. Now, it's important to note that when the officer arrived there, she never actually went in. She came through the drive through asked about it, and then she was dispatched to another call, which was just a criminal mischief call. I think one of the reports I read was someone was throwing eggs at a house or something, so she never even went in the restaurant. Crazy. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Oh, well, this, this whole thing is crazy. So after the criminal mischief call, another call came in around 9 p.m., it was regarding another missing child. Dana Moore had reported her son Michael as missing. She stated that he was last seen riding bikes with two of his friends and lost sight of them. And when she had lost sight of them, she had sent Michael's sister to look for him, but he was not, he couldn't be found. Shortly after, a second officer was dispatched to another call regarding uh, another missing child. This officer was dispatched to a catfish restaurant where Pamela Hobbs also reported her son missing. Her son was Stevie Branch. Uh, she said that he had left home after school and had not been seen since. 
So the following day on May the 6th, uh, at around 6 a.m., Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell of the West Memphis Police Department announced the boys missing. Of course, search parties of volunteers, uh, civilians, and other police officials began doing grid searches and searching the immediate area. They combed the woods for hours. After combing the woods for hours, Steve Jones with the juvenile police sector uh, discovered a child's black laceless shoe, which was floating in a stream around 1.30 p.m. Of course, this was a little, you know, a little bit off because apparently this area had been searched. Like I said, this area had been searched for hours and nobody had seen anything. And then all of a sudden he spots this, you know, black laceless shoe. So he dispatched other officers to come to the site. And once they arrived, they began searching the water. Now, once they began searching the water... Um, around 1.45 p.m., officials discovered the nude body of a boy in the water. Uh, this was the body of Michael Moore. Hand, his hands and feet were bound together with shoelaces, and he had signs of severe head trauma and signs of sexual trauma. Detective Brian Ridge then began getting on, he got on all fours and started searching the bottom of the water And he initially came upon a child's white shirt, child's nude body, which was also bound as well. This was the body of Stevie Branch. Uh, He had severe head wounds, including what appeared to be a bite mark on his face. Yeah. Shortly after that, Ridge, Detective Brian Ridge, had found the body of Christopher Byers. Of course, he was nude and bound as well, like the others. However, there was one distinguishing factor in regards to him. Um, they had discovered, so when they found him in the water or in the mud, when detectives rolled him over, um, they had discovered trigger alert. <sighs> this is rough. Um, when they rolled him over, they discovered his scrotum was gone. And his his penis had been skinned. Oh, Jesus. Um, and then a, the area surrounding his genitalia had bore stab wounds. Ooh. Yes. Um, two of the kids' bikes were found about 30 yards away. Now, what's fucking crazy is the coroner wasn't called until about two afters after the first body was found. Now, what? yeah, and when he had arrived, the bodies had already been removed from the water and were lying on the bank. During this time, uh, John Mark Byers, the, you know, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, who was the stepfather to Christopher Byers, uh, was telling Gitchell that he was shocked because he had searched the area the evening before and did not see any signs of him, of them at the scene. This was at mm-hmm. the scene that they were talking about this and which we'll get into that later. So while at the scene, of course, you know, this was, you know, big news. This was, you know, small town. You're familiar with West Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, real country. Um, it's across the bridge. So this was, you know, this was big news. At the scene, of course, reporters and everything showed up. And John Mark Byers is 
if anybody has seen any any type of media regarding this this case then you'll know who john mark byers is he's the one of the stepfathers that's not afraid of the camera (laughs) to put it nicely (laughs) he liked his 10 minutes of fame um so to speak yeah he was the one you know when you were watching that um the one I said, like in the movie, The Devil's Not, mm-hmm. they were pretty spot on with yeah. how he spoke. Um, speaking of, I got a lot of my information from either autopsy files, case records, or the book uh, Devil's Not, um, which, of course, I'll link all my sources in the show notes. I know I'm getting off topic or going on a tangent here. <laughs> Anyways, so at the scene, um, like I said, John Mark Byers is usually the one you'll see in front of the camera. And of course he was interviewed by reporters at the scene. Now, during this interview, he had given information about the injuries regarding like the wounds and stuff that they had suffered that Gitchell hadn't even released yet, uh, such as head wounds and, you know, the sexual or trauma in that area that they had observed. But later this, you know, he said that it was, he got the information from another detective, which we'll get into that, you know, later on down the road, because apparently he was very close with the police. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, the next morning after that, uh, which would have been May the 7th, it was the opinion. And these autopsies were performed by Dr. Frank Peretti of the Arkansas state crime lab, which he will come into play later as well. Also, these boys were eight. They were eight years old. Can't imagine. I know. Um, investigation of the circumstances of death revealed that the descendant was one of three children and, that were found in the ditch that contained approximately two to two and a half feet of water, which was approximately 150 yards southeast of the Blue Beacon truck wash on South Service Road at Interstate 40 and 55 in West Memphis, Arkansas. He was reported missing approximately 6 p.m. on May the 5th, 1993, and his body was found the afternoon of May 6th, 1993. When his body was when his body was found, his body was nude and his wrists were bound to the ankles bilaterally. His left arm was bound to his left leg and then his right arm was bound to his right leg. The autopsy showed that the descendant's hands were bound to his feet. There were multiple traumatic injuries consisting of contusions, abrasions, lacerations involving the head, torso, and extremities. The skull showed multiple fractures with associated brain injury. In addition, there was evidence of drowning, which included washerwoman wrinkling of the hands and aspiration of water into the sphenoid sinus and petechial hemorrhages involving the heart, lungs, and thymus. Good God, man. Yeah. Um, There were no signs of sexual trauma on Michael Moore, but he had obviously suffered a horrific death. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do with this case is, which... I'm trying, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here with, you know, about where I'm going with this case and whatnot, but the injuries these kids suffered was so traumatic and so gnarly that I would want to find, I mean, I get the officers 
I guess. Spunk. What's the word I'm looking for? That's probably right, but trying to wrap it up, get it. I mean, yeah, because this is three eight-year-old boys. Three mm. eight-year-old boys. And they are so fucking cute. Yeah, they were. They were so fucking adorable. And eight years old, like, ugh. Like, this case breaks my heart in so many fucking ways. I mean, I can... Putting myself in the shoes of one of those dads, I mean, I would be going on a witch hunt too, you know? I mean, yeah. I'd go all... What's that movie with Gerard, uh, Gerard Butler? Damn, I can't think of it. Law-abiding citizen. That's yes. it. Yes. Had to pause it and find it because it was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Christopher Mark Byers' cause of death was listed as multiple injuries, and the manner of death, of course, was homicide. Um, his autopsy revealed multiple injuries, multiple facial contusions, abrasions, lacerations, contusions and abrasions of the ears, um, a left parietal scalp laceration, fractures at the base of the skull, and genital mutilation with the absence of this one's just it's rough it is it you know i'm not going to go into it again but you know i said it earlier but all of that yeah. down there of course multiple contusions and abrasions and lacerations of the torso and extremities and of course the binding of the wrists and ankles behind the back <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this is not funny. I'm going through the autopsy results and I hit <laughs> I hit a button on my sound pad that played that fucking music. Uh, Damn it. I've never great. done that until you got in here and did it earlier. <laughs> I, I did it when we were getting set up. She said, don't do that. Don't press <laughs> And who buttons. ended up doing it? I know. I know. I did fucking mean to. Anyways. Stevie Branch's autopsy revealed uh, multiple injuries. Uh, his cause of death was multiple injuries with drowning. Um, you know, the same multiple facial abrasions and contusions and lacerations. Fractures at the base of the skull. Bindings of the hand and feet. Multiple contusions and abrasions and lacerations of the torso. Terminal submerging, wriggling of the hands and feet, water in this phenoid sinus, pulmonary edema, and congestion with bloody, frothy fluid in the airways. These kids were. It was crazy. These kids were essentially beaten and drowned to death. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really, really, really fucking. Obviously, this was a horrendous crime and there was a lot of pressure to solve this crime and, of course, put the person or persons behind bars that did this because this is three fucking eight-year-olds. Mm -hmm. After this, you know, Gary Gitchell, of course, reassured the community that they were going to solve this crime. And in a later statement, uh, he said that the murders 
might have been as a result of either cult or gang activity, even though he had followed it up with he hadn't seen any evidence to suggest that. At the time, uh, the governor of Arkansas had actually reached out to Gary Gitchell to offer the assistance of the state police, like their criminal investigation sector, but Gitchell had declined. Why mm. did he decline? Hmm. He said his strategy was to keep as much information as close to the chest. Um, the less the public knew, uh, the better. Details such as wounds would be left for only the detectives and the killer or killers to know. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, like I said, could there be a more sinister reason for it? Well, at the time of the murders, several police officers at the West Memphis Police Department and the Sheriff's Office were under investigation by none other. Take a wild guess. Internal Affairs. No, the Arkansas State Police. <laughs> the one. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Now, even though Gitchell himself hadn't been questioned by the Arkansas State Police regarding this certain investigation, the investigation involved possible drugs and corruption. There was apparently things that would go missing from evidence, such as guns and drugs. They just fucking vanished. So, of course... The Arkansas State Police Department was investigating this, and this was at the time of the murders. The the law. Yeah. The 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 people in charge of the law. Mm-hmm. The district attorney, Brent Davis, chose not to prosecute. Keep that fucking name in mind too. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> you got all of that. So far. So far. <laughs> now, here's where things, you know, those names I told you to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. So days after the boys' bodies were discovered, keep in mind, you know, this is during the time of satanic panic. Of course, he's already somewhat hinted to Gary Gitchell, like to the fucking media, that even though he came, you know, came back with this whole gaslighting type statement, there's no evidence of that, right? Mm-hmm. So days after the boys' bodies were discovered, Lieutenant James Sudbury of the West Memphis Police Department contacted Steve Jones, the juvenile officer that found the fur or found the black shoe. During their conversation, Sudbury and Jones expressed their shared belief that the murders had strong overtones of cultic sacrifice. Jones then informed Sudbury that there was one person he knew of that was involved in cult activities that could be capable of committing such a crime. Can you guess? Hmm. Damien Eccles! So they agreed to meet at Damien Eccles' residence to interview him. So around 12 p.m. on Friday, May the 7th, two fucking days after... They were missing one day after the discovery of the body. These two officers arrived at the Broadway trailer park in West Memphis, Arkansas, where Eccles lived. 
Uh, they briefly talked to Pamela Hutchison and the father, Eddie Hutchison, and gained their permission to interview Damien. They conducted the initial interview in Damien's bedroom. At the time, Lieutenant Sudbury took a Polaroid photograph of Damien Eccles and noted that he had a tattoo on his chest of a five-pointed star or pentagram and another unidentified tattoo on his shoulder or arm. Two days later, an official interview of, with Damien was conducted. During this interview, Damien was asked whether one of the boys was more savagely attacked than the other two, to which Damien told them he believed one of the boys had been mutilated more than the others and had his genitals cut. Police considered that this was information that only would have been known by the killer or killers, but in fact, it was common knowledge in the community. Because as mm. I said, the papers the next day blasted it everywhere. However, they kept that little statement in their back pocket. And after the interview was complete, no charges were pressed and Damien was released. Now, who is Damien Eccles? So Damien Eccles was born Michael Wayne Hutchison on the 11th of December in 1974. Um, until their divorce, Damien's parents were constantly on the move because of their father's work. They would only stay in an area for a short time before they would have to relocate again. Uh, Damien learned to enjoy his own company, which I get it. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not a people person. <laughs> <laughs> and making friends due to his, you know, it was really hard for him to make friends because he was moving all the time. When his mother remarried, Damien was adopted by her second husband, Jack Eccles. And they moved to the home in West Memphis. Now, uh, when he was 13, it was about five years since he had last seen his father, which is really fucking sad. Yes. Uh, Damien dropped his father's name and assumed the one of his adoptive father. His new name was only the beginning of many changes that Damien would experience over the next few years. Um, in junior high school, Damien's, he once had really good grades. They began to plummet. Um, and of course, that did not improve in high school. Um, at 15, his uh, relationship with his mom had been very, which, you know, had been very close in the past, uh, really just became very volatile uh, with arguments that became a daily occurrence. Damien was obviously seen as kind of an outsider, um, which, you know, he'll... We'll get to that later. It varied based on the person of how they saw him. He, you know, he wore black clothing a lot, which, I mean, what's my closet look like? Full of black. <laughs> and it, you know, he wore what became his, you know, I guess signature, like trademark was, you know, a long black overcoat, which he wore no matter the weather. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He, you know, he later stated that, you know, he did this on purpose because, you know, it would keep people away from him or kind of, I guess, deter people from him, which he liked because he liked to be alone. You know, this kid's going through a lot. He hadn't seen his dad in five years, which I can fucking understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he's moved around a lot. It, You know, he, this kid's going through, you know, going through a lot. He was really battling, like, just an emotional state of isolation and depression. 
which, you know, this only continually increased over the years. And if you're from the fucking South, nobody believes in fucking medication. They believe you just, no offense, just need to pray it away. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it's something that you control, which that's not fucking true. So he was really into like trying to find the meaning of life, I guess you could say. Um, he was really into studying, you know, different religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Is Islam, um, and then eventually Catholicism. Damien was not his given name. He, you know, started, he really discovered Catholicism, and he felt that he had found what he was looking for, and therefore he was baptized and received communion. Now, it was during this time that's when he changed his name to Damien. He actually changed it to Damien after Father Damien, a 19th century Catholic priest who cared for lepers on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. Rumors spread that the reason he did this, um, he had named himself Damien after the series of Omen movies. Mm. Now, he had, like I said, he was going through quite a bit. Um, he had actually attempted suicide a number of times between the years of 91 and 93, um, which included hanging, an overdose, and even trying to drown himself. Jeez. Yeah, this, uh, he was going through a lot and it wasn't about to get any better. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, his first contact with police came at uh, when he was about 17. He and his girlfriend at the time had decided to run away from home together. On the first night that they were out, they had actually broke into an abandoned house for shelter. Within an hour, the police were there and Damien was arrested and subjected to a number of psychological tests. From there, he was sent to Charter Hospital in Maumel, Maumel, I can't pronounce it. While he was there, he was diagnosed as manic depressive. After his arrest, he first met Jerry Driver, a chief juvenile probation officer for the Crittenden County and a partner of Steve Jones. Mm -hmm. This, an interview later with Damien, according to him, Driver had been convinced that satanic cults were behind many criminal activities in the area and was determined to prove his theories. And of course, Damien and Driver's paths would cross several more times in the future as Driver was hell-bent on investigating Damien regarding a variety of unsolved crimes in the area, none of which he was apparently able to pin on Damien. Sounds like they were just trying to pin something on him. <laughs> you have no fucking idea. Stop messing with shit. <laughs> it was bugging me. <laughs> If you hear sounds in the background, it's because he can't stop messing with stuff. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so a few months after his release from Charter, he had several other traumatic changes happen. His mother and Jack Eccles, which was his adoptive father, had divorced and she remarried Damien's biological father moving with him to Portland, Oregon. Damien was still on probation at this time, and his parents informed the authorities at West Memphis of the move. Uh, of course, these changes didn't do anything to help, and he began to drink heavily. 
And like I said, he, you know, went through depression, alcohol, rehabilitation, but he actually tried to kill himself with a knife. He sent back to the hospital, but was soon released uh, when he informed doctors that there was nothing they could do to make him feel better. After his release, he immediately left Portland and returned to Arkansas. Records in the Portland show that authorities were properly informed of this change and the driver and that driver's office was notified. However, there was no record of this information showing it was entered in the Arkansas office. So Damien was staying with a friend on conditional terms that he would return to school. On the day he applied for school for readmittance, he was told to return with a letter from his parents. Driver arrested Damien as he left the school grounds. Uh, the complaint filed by Driver at the time was that Damon had, Damien had violated his parole when he left his par- parental care in Portland because he had threatened the lives of his parents. So Damien was immediately returned to Charter Hospital where he spent two weeks. Uh, When he left, he found that his depression had greatly improved because the doctor who treated him did not allow him to dwell on his problems and insisted that he mix with other patients at the hospital. Um, So in 1992, in December, he sat for and passed the GED, which fulfilled the terms of his probation. As soon as he was released from the hospital, Damien had moved in with his girlfriend, Dominique Tier in West Memphis. And sometime after this, Damien's parents returned to West Memphis. And sometime during all this, Dominique actually ended up getting pregnant with Damien's first child. Oh, snap. So given that, you know, Steve Jones was involved with Damien at some point before this, the police were pretty certain that they had their prime suspect and they were going to focus on him and looking for any evidence which would enable them to arrest Damien Eccles. They began interviewing any known associates of Damien, which weren't a whole lot because, you know, he kept himself, kept himself, but he did have one very close best friend, Jason Baldwin. That's how Jason comes in. And so Jason and Damien had received many visits from the police department. Now, who is Jason Baldwin? So Jason was, like I said, was Damien's really close friend. He was only 16 at the time. Jason didn't have a heavy history with the police. He had been previously arrested with Eccles for vandalism and shoplifting. However, he, you know, he had, he had earned high grades He had a talent for drawing and sketching. He was actually encouraged by one of his teachers to study graphic design in college. Eccles and Baldwin actually became close friends because they bonded over their similar tastes in music. That's how we bonded. That's (laughs) That's how we became friends. It is. You know, they bonded over the similar tastes in music, like Metallica, Mm -hmm. Slayer, Rock On My Dudes. And over their shared obvious distaste for essentially their cultural disdain for the Bible Belt. Yeah. Which it can be, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) 
you know, Jason, you know, we all did some stupid shit when we were little, or at least I did. I was a good kid. You're fucking full of shit. <laughs> no, I really was. It wasn't until after I graduated that I... Oh, was the Buster's incident before or after? After. <laughs> <laughs> that was well after. That was when I was in my hoodlum days. My hoodlum days just came after I graduated high school. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I am what I am. I'm a hooligan. Hooligan! Um, can't deal with you right now so anyways by all accounts besides you know just stupid childhood bullshit I mean we've all done like I said done some stupid crap while you may have been an angel I was not (laughs) so (laughs) we won't go into detail though shall we this is not about me this is not about me this is about this this is important yes you're you're sending me on a tangent here sir sorry (laughs) so that is how jason baldwin came into the picture damien and jason had received many visits from the police what's important is that on May the 6th, the day of the discovery of the bodies, apparently the West Memphis Police Department had received a call from Don Bray at the Marion County Police Department. Apparently Don Bray had informed them that a young boy was there who claimed to know something about the murders. Enter stage left a woman named Vicki Hutchison. Vicky had brought her little boy, whose name was Aaron Hutchison, to the police department. Apparently, Aaron, her son, had told Bray that the boys had been at, quote-unquote, at the playhouse. Uh, West Memphis Police Department officers told Bray that the location was near where the boys were found. When officers tried to find this and took Aaron to, no playhouse was found. Uh, Later, Aaron had claimed that he had actually witnessed the murders, claiming first first that he had seen men in the woods dressed up and talking Spanish, then later indicated that he had seen John Mark Byers kill the boys. I don't have the transcripts from this interview, but based on like what I've seen, because the book Devil's Knot was made into a movie now, from what... I saw it was pretty accurate to the book, but this kid's story um, had changed several times and he, it was was never the same. There was obviously many inconsistencies in the story. uh, The police actually attempted him, attempted to get him to identify Jason and Damien in a photo lineup, but he wasn't able to do so. (laughs) He actually, um, was not able to identify any any of the three accused. Jesse's, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Until after a confession that, I guess you could say, turned this case upside down. Mm-hmm. This is where man, or young man, named Jesse Miss Kelly comes into the picture. Aaron was often babysat by Jesse Miss Kelly. So that is where he comes in and... However, even though 
later on when we get to trial, the police decided not to use Aaron's confession due to obvious inconsistencies and because his story had changed so much and because other witnesses placed him placed him well away from the crime scene at the time of the murders. However, news of this confession got out pretty quickly uh, that police had a witness to the crimes, which severely fucked this case. (laughs) There's no easy way to put it. Now, apparently, Vicki Hutchison was looking forward or really needing the assistance from the reward fund. So she she ended up agreeing to let police wire her house in an attempt to tape Damien talking about the murders. She didn't know Damien personally, so she had asked Jesse to arrange for Damien to come to her home. Um, Jesse at the time claimed he did not know Damien, but he was able to arrange for Damien to meet with Vicky just prior to his arrest. Apparently, this entire conversation was taped but no information that was helpful to the police was recorded. They claimed that nothing was audible on the tape, although Vicky claims she had heard the tape at the West Memphis Police Department and everything could be heard pretty clearly. Hmm. Vicky at some point made a statement to police that two weeks after the murders, she had gone with Jesse and Damien to an Esbat. I hope I'm saying that right which is a ritual observance of the full moon within Wicca and other Wiccan-influenced forms of neo-paganism. She claimed that Damien had driven his red Ford Fiesta to an empty field where the Esbat Esbat supposedly occurred. Damien didn't have a driver's license, nor did he own a Ford Fiesta. And Vicky was not able to identify anyone else attending this event or even able to find its location. However, Vicky Hutchison <laughs> was still used uh, during the trial as a corroborative witness to Damien and Jesse's satanic involvements. Oh my lord. Like I said... That's how Jesse Miss Kelly came into the picture, which he initially wasn't a suspect. However, apparently police became convinced of Jesse's involvement when a man named William Winifred Jones told them that Damien, while drunk, had bragged to to him about murdering the boys. So apparently Jesse was drunk and bragged to this man about Damien murdering the boys. However, this statement was at some point recanted. But this statement is what led the police to begin questioning Jesse Miss Kelly. Here's where shit hits the fan. Shit hits the fan. Yep. So on June the 3rd, 1993, the West Memphis Police Department officially brought Jesse Miss Kelly in for questioning. <laughs> this confession, which I'll, I'll go over a brief synopsis of it, I recommend you watch the documentary Paradise Lost. There's three of them, but the first one covers the trials. I recommend you watch the first one because it plays this quote-unquote confession and it's something you have to hear, I guess you could say, to believe it, so to speak. It's a Jesse Miss Kelly. He was diagnosed or 
he was diagnosed as mentally handicapped or he was questioned for around 12 hours, but only about 46 minutes in two separate segments, which totaled 46 minutes, was actually recorded. <laughs> and also, when he was taken in, the police did not have a written waiver of his Miranda rights signed by Jesse's father, which is a legal requirement for minors, because keep in mind, Jesse is only 17. So in Jesse's confession, um, he had claimed that Jason Baldwin had telephoned him very early the morning of May the 5th. Um, and during the course of this conversation, Jason had asked Jesse to accompany himself and Damien Eccles to the Robin Hood Hills area. Initially, Jesse had stated that he had gone to the Robin Hood area at about 9 a.m. that day to an area near a creek where he met up with Damien and Jason. They were actually in the creek when the three boys rode up on their bicycles. Baldwin and Eccles had called to the boys who then came to the creek. And at this time, Baldwin and Eccles began to severely beat the boys. Jesse, you know, he was claiming he was just an observer, stated that the two boys, or that at least two of the boys, were raped and forced to perform oral sex on Baldwin and Eccles. While this was going on, Jesse claimed that Michael Moore had attempted to escape, but Jesse had caught him and returned him to Baldwin and Eccles. He then began to state that Baldwin had used a knife to cut the boys' faces and the lower area of Christopher Byers. Eccles had used a large stick to hit one of the boys and to strangle them. After this attack, the boys' clothes were removed and they were tied up. Uh, Jesse then left the scene. He was sure that... Christopher Byers was already dead and that after he arrived home, after Jesse had arrived home, he claimed that he was telephoned by Baldwin, who apparently said, quote, we done it. And, quote, what are we going to do if somebody saw us? Jesse said that he could hear Eccles in the background. When asked whether he had been involved in a cult, Jesse said that he had been for about three months, he told police that they usually met in the woods where they engaged in orgies and initiation rites, which, which included killing and eating dogs. He stated that at one of these meetings, he saw a photograph that Eccles had taken of the three boys and claimed that Eccles had been watching the boys. When he was asked to describe what Baldwin and Eccles were wearing at the time of the murders, he told police that Jason had been wearing blue jeans, black lace-up boots, and a t-shirt with the skull and the name of the band Metallica on it. He said that Damien was also wearing black boots, or that Damien was wearing black pants, boots, and a black t-shirt. During the course of this first statement, it's really, like I said, only something you can hear. He initially said the murders occurred from 9 a.m. Then he changed it to 12 p.m. They were supposed to be in school during that time. He explained the three boys had skipped school. This, the times kept getting later and later. <laughs> after another recorded statement taken about two hours after the first one had concluded, like I said, the time changed again. 
at this time, uh, he said Baldwin and Eccles had arrived at the Robin Hood area between 5 and 6 p.m., which, like I said, I encourage you to go watch the documentary, but I will say it is very graphic um, because they do show photos and it is the actual trial. You can hear the officer interviewing him. He was being prompted and which then again, he changed, Jesse changed the time between 7 and 8 p.m. The teenagers had arrived at 6 p.m. and the victims had arrived when it was nearly dark. Now, in his second statement... Jesse gave further details about the sexual molestation of the boys. He stated some very graphic stuff. He had also initially stated that the boys had been tied with brown rope. This was obviously very contradictory to what was actually found, because keep in mind, the boys were found tied with shoelaces. Mm -hmm. During the course of this interview, Jesse had changed it to... It was shoelaces. Like I said, there were several different fuck-ups, I guess you could say, or corrections in um, his statement. Jesse had stated that the victims and Jason Baldwin were not at school, when in fact that they were proven to be in school because, you know, initially he said it was around 9 a.m., then it changed to 12 p.m. Well, they were supposed to be in school, including Jason Baldwin, and he tried to say that they skipped, but it was proved that they were in school. Um, Jesse had stated that the victims were bound with rope, but they weren't. They were bound with shoelaces. Jesse had stated that one of the boys was choked with a stick um, when the medical examiner's report stated that there was no evidence of strangulation. And there were further quote-unquote confessions or aspects of this confession that involved sexual assault that were not consistent with the medical examiner's report I say all that to say, I don't want to go into too much detail, but you can hear the confession on that documentary, and it's really something you have to listen for yourself to really understand the issue with this confession. Definitely. So, after this, police immediately went to arrest Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly. And we were going to trial. Mm -hmm. And that is where we will end for part one. What are your thoughts so far? Seems like a giant clusterfuck. (laughs) And train wreck. To say the least. (laughs) Way too many inconsistencies. I try to, you know keep my own bias from intervening or, you know, I guess twisting my judgment or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I just get so fucking mad when I read over this case and the further I dove into it and found, you know, of course I knew a lot about this case, but there were, you know, things behind the scenes that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And so the further I dove into it, I was just like, I can't, Finding myself saying, what the fuck? Like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Yeah, we just watched the Devil's Knot the -hmm. other day. And uh, I was even saying, like, what the fuck? Like, I was getting mad. Yeah. Like, Well, it doesn't stop there. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) just wait till part two. (laughs) Wait till part two. Yeah. First podcast episode in the books. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Yes, thank you. And 
Thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> well, I know you had a long drive over here, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was an exhausting trip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to live streaming. I'm not used to the oh, podcast yeah. If setting. there are any gamers out there um, or anybody that likes to watch live stream gaming, um, yes. Lance over here is a streamer. Uh, you can follow, well, I'll, let, I'll shut up and let you tell them. Yeah, shameless plug, <laughs> facebook.com slash southern metal, because, you know, I'm a southern metal head. Exactly. As we're, you uh, can see, <laughs> one of the reasons this case is so close to my heart. <laughs> yes, match made in metal. <laughs> oh my God, you're so stupid. <laughs> hey, wasn't that your saying initially? Yes. I don't know. I've slept a lot since then. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 so yeah guys you can follow him and uh join us again for part two of this case like i said there's gonna be multiple parts i'm just not sure how many because it's like <laughs> i keep diving in and finding more yeah i've seen the list of notes and it's I'm about not, a mile long so but that's only for part one <laughs> <laughs> oh geez <laughs> so lance here is going to uh you know, be the voice you hear probably on the rest of this partic particularly few episodes because, yeah, Emily's getting over the strep. Poor thing. Oh, yeah. She's... We, we love you, Emily. Yes. If you hear us. I know I don't do you justice, but I'm trying over here. <laughs> You're not as pretty. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'm more pretty. Oh my God. I'm just kidding. God, get the fuck out of here. I gotta go home. Oh, fuck. I am oh, home. <laughs> okay. Anyways, we're gonna sign off for uh, tonight. Um, follow us on Facebook or follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash MNO true crime podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Murders Night Out. Also, you visit our homepage or the link in our show notes to our homepage. If you want to support the show, you can. Uh, for a small monthly, you know, donate whatever you want. It'll really help us to get access to more case documents and, you know, more resources to really be able to tell you, you know, go through these cases in more detail to stuff that we may not have initial access to. Also, if you like us, rate us, share us with your friends, tell them about us, uh, give them a trigger warning that I have the mouth like a fucking sailor, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us on Amazon Music. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Like I said, if you like us, rate us. Give us a good rating. If you don't like us, give us a, a high five. <laughs> Cut us some slack. Give us, give us some uh, constructive criticism. <laughs> Um, but thanks, guys. I really, really, really appreciate all of the love and support that we've gotten. Um, I was really excited. We've officially gone international. We hit Ireland and Canada. Nice, so nice. that's exciting. I'll shut up for now. Thank you again. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a Bye. good night. Bye.